Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, China's Premier Li Qiang strikes a bullish tone in terms of China's economic growth. New Zealand's Prime Minister seeks to boost ties in forced China visit. NATO chief is making a last-ditch effort to bring Sweden into the fold before a summit scheduled to be held next month, and the International Monetary Fund has warned central banks about "quote-unquote" uncomfortable truth in terms of fighting inflation. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World Today." First up. Chinese Premier Li Qiang says all countries should cherish openness and cooperation after going through the twists and turns of economic globalization. He spoke at the opening session of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting of the New Champions, better known as the Summer Devils, in the city of Tianjin. Premier Li also called for better communication and cooperation among the international community. He added that China is on track to reach its annual growth target of around five percent this year. He also said that economic growth in the second quarter will be higher than the first quarter, and Beijing will roll out more effective policies to open markets and expand domestic demand. Now, for more, my colleague Zhao Yang earlier spoke with Dr. Yao Shujie, Chengkong Professor of Economics with Chongqing University. So, Professor Yao, first, could you tell us what are the highlights from Premier Li Qiang's keynote speech? I I can summarize in three points. The first point is that uh, Professor Li, uh, uh, Premier Li Qiang, he emphasized that the global condition at the moment is very challenging. And there is、uh, obviously a lack of、uh, cooperation and, and cooperation、uh, between the major economies.、Uh, I mean, it implies maybe、uh, the United States and China and some other countries. The second point is that、uh, the global、uh, economic condition is full of potential risk and uncertainty. So, what the country can do,、uh, what China and other Uh, country can do is to inject more certainty and、uh, you know stability into the global economy system.、Mm-hmm. So this is the opinion of the Chinese premier. And the third point that China is a major and rising economy.、Uh, China has overcome the pandemic challenges.、Uh, the only major economy to achieve positive growth. In、uh, 2020, and this year, the first quarter, the economic growth is 4.5 percent, but the second quarter is going to be higher, and the rest of the year will be also higher. So he expects that China、uh, is able to achieve the 5 percent、uh, economic growth this year. That would indeed a lot of、uh, uh, in a confidence and certainty into the global economy. Mm. In addition to that, China is also the major trading、uh, country in the world, the largest trading country over the last sixty years, and will continue to be so. China will promote,、uh, you know, stability in the domestic market, and also、uh, be even more open, high quality openness to the rest of the world. 
mm. welcoming foreign direct investment into China, and China would also continue to invest into other countries to promote uh, bilateral investment as well cross-border trade. Mm. And this is uh, what China's uh, determination. It actually sends our very uh, strong signal to the rest of the world. Whatever happened outside, China would be a major pillar of uh, economic growth in the world. So, Premier said the so-called de-risking from the West is a pseudo proposition. So, having said that, what is China's proposal to deal with it? Well, um, the Chinese, uh, the old saying or the proverb is that doing is better better than saying. So, what uh, presumably proposed by uh, primarily is that uh, some Western countries they probably say more than what they what they do. Uh, and in the opposite, China would do more than what they say. So I think this is the con- uh, the so-called contrasting uh, proposition between some country in the West and China. It is a very clear signal China is going to uh, commit uh, what China says, and even more so in the future. Mm. And a key driver of the economic growth is cooperation and collaboration. So, how do you really look at the global trade today? And what do you think is the cost of fragmentation? What well, the cost of fragmentation is very obvious. Uh, you know, over the last few years, uh, particularly during the during the pandemic and also the China-U.S. trade conflict, we can see that uh, not only China and the U.S. suffer. But also the other uh, country, particularly the smaller country, they suffer even more because of the inflation uh, in many countries is really high, and the economic situation there is suffer from the the so-called double-edged sword. Not only the high inflation, but also the sluggishness of the economic growth, uh, and this includes the very advanced economy in Western Europe, and also in South Korea. Uh, in Japan, to some extent, uh, America, uh, although America still uh, maintain a, a fairly steady situation, the stock market is stable, but the econ- the economy in the U.S. also suffer from high inflation and low economic growth. Mm. So, uh, by the trade confliction and fragmentation, it doesn't actually help anyone, uh, particularly the consumers in the in the in the country. Uh, in Europe and the United States, I have personal experience there. Uh, the inflation is really uh, hitting the consumer, the the, the people, really hard. Mm. In China, uh, actually, uh, suffer also because the Chinese economy slowed down, obviously. Uh, but because due to the domestic resilience and the large domestic market and the, the strong manufacturing capacity, the complete industrial chain. Uh, China managed to maintain a very low level of inflation and a reasonable, reasonable level of economic growth, mm. uh, despite it's a, a lower level than before. Mm. And in his speech, Premier Li Qiang has emphasized the openness and cooperation, and these are seen as a key to solving the global problems. What do you make of that? And in what ways will China further promote its high standards opening up? Yeah, collaboration and cooperation is really the key for the stability of the international economy. Uh, and because, as I say, uh, in, you know, decoupling or, or you know, 
uh, lack of cooperation would lead to, lead to very uh, negative and strong uh, uh, impact on the global economy. What China do? Uh, China is the largest economy in terms of international trade and uh, in terms of uh, manufacturing, and now it's increasingly become more important as the uh, inward and outward investor. So what China can do is to make sure that the, the, the door is manfully open. As you can see, uh, despite the political tension between China and the United States, the Chinese government still fairly welcome uh, the, the boss of Tesla and also Microsoft uh, to come to China. Uh, they invite the, the largest company to invest in China whatever way they feel they like to do. Mm. And in terms of uh, international trade, China uh, still uh, trying to maintain the bilateral trade between China and the United States, China and the European Union, the traditional trade partners. But China is also doing much more to diversify uh, the trade relationship with the Bell and Low Initiative uh, countries, and also uh, particularly the member state of ASEAN, the Southeast Asian National uh, Membership. And, and this, this is uh, China's uh, proactive approach uh, to maintain stability in international trade and, and international investment. Uh, as a large country, it takes the whole responsibility for uh, international cooperation as well as uh, committing to the climate change agreement. And Premier Li Qiang said China is on track to reach its annual growth target of around 5% this year, and economic growth in the second quarter would be higher than the first quarter. So how do you look at China's economic outlook this year? Well, I have to say the China economy is facing fairly unprecedented challenges and risks uh, over the years, particularly this year. Uh, the first quarter is still first, uh, suffer from the, 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 you know, the event, the contention of the pandemic. So it achieved 4.5%, which is slightly lower than we expected. But uh, the second quarter recovered fairly strongly. As you can see, there are more activity, more people, uh, to people exchange, particularly the services, uh, the tourism sector, and also the manufacturing is uh, is picking up. So uh, it is expected that the second quarter would be something like six percent. That would even out the, the the low level in the first quarter. And if this trend continue, the momentum continue into the second half of the year. Yes, China uh, it should be able to achieve the 5% or even more uh, economic growth target for Mm. 2023. Mm. And he said Beijing would roll out more effective policies to expand domestic demand and open markets. So what do you expect for that? Well, there are lots of uh, economic instruments that the Chinese government can do. For example, uh, there should be more liquidity into the market system, there should be more uh, legalization of credit uh, to the private sector, and there should be more uh, stimulating policy to uh, stabilize the housing market and also some sort of state investment into the infrastructure uh, to, to boost the, the, the investment sector also. And there will be some uh, preferential policy to stimulate uh, you know, consumer demand, particularly in the countryside. 
Uh, mm. There will be continued effort to encourage uh, the people in the countryside to buy uh, automobile, especially the new electrical car uh, in the countryside, which still have a very strong uh, and very large space for expansion. Mm. And China remains a major investment opportunity because it is going to contribute about one third of the global growth this year, and this is according to different international organization. So, what do you think about that? Well, China has been uh, contributing almost thirty percent plus of global economic growth on over the last decade, and this year, I think the momentum will be still there. The economic growth in China will be still. Uh, much higher than the than the global average. This means that China's contribution to the global economy in terms of growth will be higher than the the share of the Chinese GDP in the world economy. Mm. So, a thirty percent or even one third of economic growth to the world economy is really the solid foundation, the confidence, uh, the basis for the other country. Uh, to to maintain their stability in their domestic market. Professor Yao Shujie, Chengkong Professor of Economics with Chongqing University, talking to my colleague Zhao Yang. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the World Today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join us. A senior manager of accounting giant Deloitte says Chinese Premier Li Qiang has delivered a positive message about China's role in the world economy at the Summer Devils Forum. Thierry Dalmasali, Asia Pacific Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer with Deloitte, made this piece of remark in an interview with my colleague Lily Liu. Dalmasali has also called on smaller businesses to do more to strive for digital maturity in order to strengthen innovation capabilities. Here, let's take a listen to the interview. You were listening on to Chinese Premier Li Qiang's speech. What、That's、is your impression、right. of the key of his key messages and the priorities of China and the global economy? Well, the message of Premier Li was a message of optimism uh, and uh, positiveness about、uh, the world economy and the prospects for the world future development and the role that China can play globally in enabling that. Uh, further development and prosperity. He stressed essentially,、uh, I think, mainly four topics. First was the need for communication between countries,、uh, as opposed to prejudice.、Mm-hmm. Uh, the second message, which I found was very powerful, was the need for global cooperation, as opposed to one-sidedness.、Mm-hmm. Uh, Premier Li also、uh, stressed the need for openness. Openness to globalization, to win-win、uh, ways of working together,、uh, as opposed to notions of isolation,、uh, de-risking,、uh, etc. And finally,、uh, very importantly, in today's context,、uh, he stressed 
the need for peace and prosperity as an enabling condition mm -hmm. for further economic development as opposed to disruption. So I found the message extremely powerful, both in terms of the directions expressed for the future development of world affairs, but also for the role that China uh, would like to play uh, in enabling uh, these positive developments. And I believe this message will resonate uh, in many countries across the world, certainly with the business community, uh, but also with societies and, and countries in various regions of the world. So that was a very good uh, and impressive uh, presentation. Mm -hmm. And also the theme of this year's Summer Davos <coughs> focus on entrepreneurship, okay. naming and entrepreneurship being the driving force of the global economy. What is your understanding on the theme and how do you think entrepreneurship and uh, business startups can drive economic growth in, in job creation and others? Well, former U.S. President Obama once very famously said that small and medium-sized enterprises were the backbone of the economy and the cornerstone of our communities. I think that's a very good way to put the importance of small and medium-sized businesses in a bigger picture. And what is true in the U.S. is true globally, it's true in Asia, it's true in China as well. Mm -hmm. Um, today, small and medium-sized businesses account for 90%, more than 90% of all enterprises. Uh, they account for more than 70% of all jobs mm -hmm. that exist and more than 50% of tax receipts. So the economic importance of small and medium-sized businesses uh, is very, very clear. Uh, but the other part is about the, the, the importance for communities mm -hmm. because Small and medium-sized enterprises do play in markets where large players do not play. Mm -hmm. They provide goods and services for under, for example, in more remote, uh, fragmented area, uh, serving poorer population, etc. And they can do that profitability thanks to their capacity to innovate. Mm -hmm. uh, another example is around inclusion. Small and medium-sized enterprises um, provide a platform for women entrepreneurs across the world. And especially in, in countries in Asia, uh, many women are empowered by their ability uh, to create a small business and, and make a living out of this. So the importance of uh, small and medium-sized enterprises is very strong on both the economy and on communities. Now, how does that impact is created? Mm -hmm. Essentially, small and medium-sized businesses are more innovative. Mm -hmm. Large enterprises talk a lot about innovation, but many of them are not that good at innovating. If you look at the Fortune 500 uh, list of companies, mm -hmm. and if you look again 30 years from now, you will see that 60 or 70% of the companies currently in that index will no longer be there. Mm -hmm. And that's because they failed to properly innovate with the right speed and, and make bold choices to transform themselves. Small and medium-sized companies do not have uh, the type of barriers mm -hmm. to innovation that large businesses have. And you know, economic development, prosperity in the long run is just not sustainable without a lot of innovation. Uh, in the business environment. And so that's the main contribution of small and medium-sized enterprises 
to job creation and economic development. Mm-hmm. What are the key factors that can determine a country to be successful in innovation and entrepreneurship? Like what we can do policy-wise, or changes and improvements we can make, for instance, in the cultural and education industries. Well, first, uh, that's a great question. Uh, first, first, I would say that uh, countries do not innovate. Mm-hmm. Uh, countries do not compete. Uh, enterprises do, uh, and individuals in enterprise do innovate. So. The role of uh, government uh, is to set up an environment or policies that enable their businesses mm-hmm. to be more innovative and to be more competitive. So, if you think of um, a given business, uh, how can that business be become more innovative? Mm-hmm. The first thing is about leadership. Innovation is not something that happens by chance. Uh, it's uh, something that is a result of company leadership and management decisions mm-hmm. and planning. It's something that you build, not something that just arises, uh, you know, by chance. Um, the first part is to have a vision, uh, a vision of innovation, a vision of creating value, not only for your customers, mm-hmm. for your business employees, but also for society at large. Second, you know, uh, nowadays innovation is very much linked to technology, uh, and therefore, you know, companies to innovate need to reach a high level of digital maturity. Mm-hmm. They need to be digital. Uh, first is the IT infrastructure; it needs to be secure in terms of uh, data sovereignty, privacy, uh, security, but it also needs to be flexible and scalable to adapt to fast. Increasing demand、uh, for products and services. Enterprise need also to achieve a high level of data mastery. That means using data analytics to leverage proprietary data and uncover new insights that you can monetize.、Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, innovation that's not profitable,、uh, that does not address customer needs, is a waste of time. It's good ideas, but it does not. So it needs to be. Monetized properly,、mm-hmm. and that requires a lot of data. Yeah,、um, enterprises、uh, as well needs to have a digitally savvy workforce.、Mm-hmm. You need to retrain your workers. They need to understand the new world of digital space. And if you can't retrain them, you need to acquire or partner with other companies to get different type of workers. And finally, companies need to rethink how they think about their boundaries. Enterprises are no longer functioning in isolation, but as part of broader ecosystem, where they acquire technology, talent,、uh, IP, etc. So, all of this to say that government have a very important role to play to facilitate the digital transformation、uh, of enterprise, including especially small and medium-sized enterprises.、Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say, it's hard. To grow a small and medium-sized enterprise, because the playing field is not even.、Mm-hmm. It is much easier to to drive a large company than to grow a small one. Access to finance, access to critical talent, access to other assets—it's much more difficult、uh, as a small business.、Uh, and therefore, the main contribution that government should do is to level off. The playing field,、mm. and to allow small companies to operate 
with the same level of ease, not with higher barriers than their large、uh, competitors. Thierry Dalmaselli, Asia Pacific Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer with Deloitte,、um, talking to my colleague Lily Lu. Coming up next, New Zealand Prime Minister seeks to boost ties with China in his first visit to the country. NATO chief is making a last-ditch effort to bring NATO into the fold before a summit scheduled to be held next month. And the International Monetary Fund has warned central banks across the world about "quote unquote" uncomfortable truth in terms of fighting inflation. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World Today." I'm Ding Hunting Beijing. We'll be back after a short break. From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing, Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hardworking person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment. Income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance, and principles. You can follow the stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called on China and New Zealand to work together to usher in another 50 years of stable bilateral relations. Xi Jinping made the remark in a Tuesday meeting with visiting New Zealand Prime Minister Chris Kipkins, noting that a healthy relationship has brought real benefits to the people of the two countries over the past decade. For his part. Hipkins described the bilateral relations as multifaceted, adding that renewing his country's economic, people-to-people, and cultural connections with China is a major focus of his trip. Hipkins is bringing a business delegation of 29 representatives on a six-day trip, which will see him travel to three Chinese cities. It is New Zealand's first prime ministerial-level visit to China since the COVID-19 pandemic began. 
Joining us now on the line is Professor Chen Hong, Director of the New Zealand Study Centre, East China Normal University. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. First of all, Professor Chen,、uh, do you agree with President Xi Jinping in this point that China's relationship with New Zealand has been stable and healthy over the past one decade or so? Which has delivered some real concrete benefits to the people of the two countries. Yes, I do agree that the、uh, you know China New Zealand relations have、uh, endured historical tests and have been stable and healthy and have been growing to the benefits of、uh, both countries and peoples. I think the significance of、uh, this visit by Chris Hipkins, the Prime Minister Chris、uh, Hipkins, is not just about trade and economic cooperation, but it testifies the fact. Or choose that countries with different, you know, political systems and modes of social co- governance can successfully engage in a mutually beneficial relationship, which is based upon, you know, respect and、uh, trust. That is why both, I think, President Xi Jinping and Hipkins、uh, reiterated on the importance of seeking common ground while respecting the differences. There's a small detail I have noticed, which is that President Xi Jinping during the meeting wore a black tie. Uh, and the color black is the national color of New Zealand. While Hipkins、mm. wore a red tie, which is of course China's most popular and the favorite, you know, color. So differences don't set us apart, but can converge to, you know, bring people together. So I think China also attaches great importance to the、uh, highly successful partnership. As、uh, President Xi Jinping mentioned in the meeting, China and New Zealand upgraded the bilateral relationship in 2014 to one of,、uh, you know, comprehensive strategic partnership. In fact, I think. Trade cooperation between our two countries can further serve as a springboard for the、uh, two countries to join hand to, you know,、uh, promote peace, stability, and prosperity in the Asia Pacific region. Now, ahead of his trip, he said,、um, Hipkins said that I'm quoting him here:、uh, the 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 exports of traditional goods like dairy, meat, and wool to China. Are incredibly important to our country, but it is also very critical that we throw our support behind emerging sectors like gaming and health and wellness. Unquote. Why do you think New Zealand or Prime Minister himself is seeking to diversify its trade with China? Well, I think this indicates the readiness that Hipkins, you know, along with the.、Uh, New Zealand government and also the business community in New Zealand, you know, the readiness and confidence that the trade relations with China is becoming increasingly mature, you know, wide-ranging and far-reaching. So traditional commodity trade, such as you said, the dairy, meat, and timber, is obviously strong and sustaining. But Kingston is also ready to, you know, expand and also extend, you know, business collaboration in the. Service industry and entertainment, in particular, as you said, you know, gaming and healthcare. You know, in Hipkins' delegation, I see、uh, the name of Tyrone Macaulay, which is the chief operation officer of the famous New Zealand video game、okay. uh, developer called、uh, Pickpock. So I think this indicates a sanguine assessment and outlook of the developments of the Chinese economy and the Chinese society, which is growing in a new era in which the service industry is active with. You know, increasing dynamism. So, in other words, the China, China, New Zealand's economic and trade relationship is flourishing. As you know, you know, overflowing from the traditional spheres of commodity trade, especially in the primary industry products, but spill over, you know, flowing into the sector of tertiary 
industry, mm. service industries. I think this is not just about diversification, but about expanding and matur- maturation of the economic relations between the two countries. Yeah, for sure. When we talk about trade, we are actually not only talking about merchandise trade or commodity mm. trade, like you said, but also trading services. Um, now, data from the New Zealand government shows to us that the country's exports to China. Represent a quarter of the country's total export earnings. So, Professor Chen, when we talk about this、um, bilateral trading relationship,、uh, do you think there is anything that is vulnerable to, say, geopolitical risks or geopolitical challenges? For instance, according to Prime Minister Hipkins, the New Zealand government has signed seven new or upgraded free trade agreements with countries across the world. So, do you think this is a sign that New Zealand is actually making some efforts to reduce its trade dependence on China? Well, obviously, you know, trade and economic relations are always under the sway of geopolitical vicissitudes. You know, ups and downs. Uh, you know, in the、uh, you know geopolitical environment, but we need to bear in mind, you know, that the motive, you know, the、uh, guiding philosophy of today's world is peace and prosperity or development.、So、we are in a globalizing world, which is you know highly connected with supply chains, industrial chains. So you simply cannot extricate you know part of the world out of the、uh, world economy. I think the United States has been amplifying differences and trying its best to decouple the world from countries and economies which are. Ideologically different to itself, but that is simply against the national interest of individual countries. So I think there has been continuously a readiness on the part of New Zealand to carry out, you know, vibrant, vigorous trade cooperations with various countries, and that is why there are free trade agreements with other countries. Meanwhile, I think New Zealand is also engaged in various free trade frameworks such as RCEP, you know, CPTPP, and so on. So there are two dimensions of free trade framework. One is bilateral with FTAs, and the other is multilateral with regional or multi multinational you know, trade frameworks, you know, RCEP and uh, uh, CPTPP. So the same rule applies with China. The same scenario happens with China too, which also has bilateral and multilateral. Relations with the multitude of countries and, and economies.、Mm. So, in the meantime, Professor Chen, we understand、mm. another mission of Hipkins' visit this time seems to be, you know, attracting Chinese tourists back to New Zealand, because before the COVID nineteen pandemic, China was actually New Zealand's second largest source of visitors, especially tourists, second only behind Australia, and that has been. You know, somehow in one way or another affected by the pandemic. That's for sure, because in January this year,、uh, according to the data released by the New Zealand government, China was only ranking at the seventh place in this particular、uh, area. So, do you think Chinese tourists like you and me and many many our colleagues around us, our friends, will be will be interested in in terms of going back to New Zealand as tourists? Well, I think after the pandemic, the Chinese Economy is, you know, growing back, you know, recovering in a steadfast way. You know, as a matter of fact, the number of Chinese tourists, you know, seeking tourist visas to other countries has been growing, you know, significantly. And the visa offices of various countries, in particular, those popular tourist, you know, destinations, are inundated with new applications. New Zealand has always been, you know, top on the list of the, the most popular destinations for Chinese tourists. New Zealand, you know, enjoys a spectacular, you know, natural beauty as well as a vibrant 
you know, multicultural society, which Chinese tourists appreciate very much. So three years of uh, COVID travel restrictions have, you know, bred a pent-up demand in China for international travel and holiday making. So meanwhile, the Chinese government listed, you know, New Zealand on the first list of the uh, outbound group tourism earlier this year. So you see, there's this two-way desires or measures to promote Chinese tourism in New Zealand, which I'm sure is very, you know, conducive to, you know, injecting, you know, more, you know, dynamism into the cultural and economic exchanges between two countries and two peoples. Mm. So, in the bigger picture, uh, Professor mm. Chen, uh, New Zealand has made many uh, firsts in terms mm. of its dealings with China in history. For example, it was the first. A Western country to support China's accession into the World Trade Organization, and the first Western country to sign a a, a free trade deal with China.、Mm. Why do you think、um, Wellington has historically taken a more sort of、uh, conciliatory approach towards China than, say, Australia or you know other countries in the so-called Five Eyes Security Alliance? Yeah, I think that's very right. I think there has been a, you know, I should say erroneous or misguided understanding about smaller countries, such as you know New Zealand. You know, as countries with smaller, you know,、um, you know, geographic areas, smaller population,、mm-hmm. and smaller size of the economy, some people are likely to believe that such countries are bound to commit themselves into an alliance, a close alliance with a bigger country for economic and security benefits. At a sacrifice at the expense of their national interests, but New Zealand has been, you know, persisting in a, you know, you know, self-reliant external policy, attaching great importance to its own long-term, you know, national interests. So you see, you know, during, for example, during the Vietnam War years, you know, New Zealand withstood, you know, pressures from the United States to send troops to Vietnam.、Mm-hmm. New Zealand also refused U.S. naval warships into its ports. You know, because of its nuclear, non-nuclear, you know, policies. So to this day, New Zealand still, you know, demonstrates an admirable adherence to independence in political, diplomatic, and defence policy making. So you mentioned several firsts. There's actually one more first, which is that New Zealand was the first Western country to sign an MOU with China for collaboration under the framework of the Belt and Road Initiative,、mm. in spite of the opposition and interference from the United States and other Western countries. So I really think that actually many countries. Including, you know, many of the allies and partners of the United States greatly envy, you know, and admire New Zealand for its courage and determination to safeguard its own independence and sovereignty. Yeah, I guess、uh, some countries in the West, actually many in the West, probably、mm. see、uh, the Belt and Road Initiative through a geopolitical lens, but that's not the case for New Zealand. Maybe for Wellington, this is simply a matter of. Economic opportunities and commercial opportunities for its people and the governments. So, by the yes, way,、exactly. the final question、mm. before we let you go, Professor Chen, do、mm. you think the relations, the bilateral relations between China and New Zealand, offer any inspiration to other countries in the West? Yeah, as we were saying, that actually New Zealand, the China relations has been setting an you know inspiring example for the many countries, India, Western countries, because in today's world, the United States has been promoting its so-called Indo-Pacific strategy, which actually aims at you know deterring, hampering China's development, in particular to、uh, you know set you know various you know obstacles to you know you know you know pressurize. Countries around the world to commit themselves into a 
you know, conducive and, you know, constructive relationship with China. So New Zealand has been, you know, doing it in a very unique way in which, you know, it, of course, it's, it is still partly among the, you know, Western camp. But on the other hand, it has been attaching great importance to its own national interest. And in that way, actually, the China-New Zealand relationship has been growing, developing in a very healthy and mutually beneficial way. That is why I think actually, uh, uh, you know, Chris Kipkin's visit is very important to a further development in the future. Mm. Thank you, as always, for joining us. That was Professor Chen Hong, director of the New Zealand Studies Center with East China Normal University. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has vowed to convene an urgent meeting to try to erase Turkish opposition to Sweden joining the military alliance. It is seen as a last-ditch bid to, in, to, in, to enable Sweden to stand next to NATO allies at a major summit of the alliance next month. In the meantime, in a Sunday phone call, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan told NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg that Sweden must stop protests by supporters of the outlawed Kurdistan Workers' Party in the city of Stockholm in order to get the green light on NATO membership. And for your information, Turkey is accusing Sweden of being too lenient towards groups which are seen by Ankara as posing a national security threat. So joining us now on the line is Dr. David Martin-Jones, visiting professor with the War Studies Department, King's College London. Welcome back. Thank you for inviting me back. So is there any chance in your observation that the so-called last-ditch effort by Stoltenberg before this year's NATO summit will succeed? Um, it's unlikely. The, uh, the position of both um, Turkey and um, Sweden do not seem uh, very aligned at the moment. And um, the requirement that, that Turkey... Uh, want uh, Sweden to fulfill would be very difficult for Sweden to do so, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Sweden actually recently introduced a new law to, you know, aim which aims to make it harder uh, to for anybody to finance or support terrorist groups, but According to Ankara, the Ankara's uh, narrative is that this particular new law is not convincing enough. Now, before the Turkish election in May, many observers uh, saw Ankara's opposition to Sweden's NATO bid as part of, um, you know, President Erdogan's campaign strategy. Uh, now that President Erdogan has been successfully re-elected one more time, Professor, in your observation, why do you think Ankara is still yet to drop this opposition? Yeah, um, the the problem relates to both Sweden and um, Turkey's 
perception of the Kurdish minority in Turkey who want independence. So from a domestic angle, more of an international angle, Turkey wants Sweden not to support any uh, Kurdistani groups that want to work for um, their independence uh, from Turkey. So the Swedes, although they've um, followed NATO guidelines with regard to uh, out, out, uh, well, treating the PKK, that's the Kurdistani Workers' Party, as a terrorist group, um, Erdogan doesn't think that goes far enough. And also, there are a number of uh, Kurdistanis in Sweden that the Turk- Turkish um, authorities would like extradited, which, with which one suspects the Swedish authorities would not comply. Mm. So um, it's been reported that anti-corruption authorities in the U.S. and Sweden are reviewing a, a complaint alleging that the Swedish affiliate of an American company once pledged to pay tens of millions of dollars in kickbacks if a son of President Erdogan could help this particular company secure a dominant market position in Turkey. How do you think this matter could uh, could further you know add more you know complexity to Ankara's position on Sweden's NATO bid? Briefly. Well, exactly. I mean, it, it, it sounds like a, a very um, corrupt operation and will only, it won't help the situation, put it that way. It will only make it murkier and more difficult to get um, Turkey uh, to uh, accept uh, Swedish um, membership mm. of NATO. Okay, yeah, you know, seemingly these are separate issues, but at the end of the day, they are probably in one way or another interconnected. But thank you very much. That was Professor David Martin-Jones joining us from King's College London. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. The International Monetary Fund has called on central banks to tolerate a longer period of inflation above their targets in order to avert a financial crisis. Gita Gopinath, a deputy head of the IMF, made this comment during an annual conference of the European Central Bank. Gopinath suggested that tolerating inflation being higher for some more time is an quote-unquote uncomfortable truth that must be accepted. Uh, For your information, the rising interest rates across the world today are seen as a major factor leading to the high debt levels of many governments, especially on the part of low-income economies. So joining us now on the line is Professor Chi Chiang, Research Fellow of Global Issues with Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So do you think policymakers today are faced with a a sort of stark choice between solving a future financial crisis among those heavily indebted countries and rising interest rates enough to curb a seemingly stubborn inflation? Yes, I think right now we are actually being caught in the middle. 
on one hand, we really need to you know, pay attention to the interest rate because with high interest rate, we can tame the dragon of inflation. But, but on the other hand, high inflation will make the debt issue uh, much more heavier than before, especially for the low-income countries or the countries are heavily indebted with the foreign uh, debtors. So this is going to make the situation even worse for them. And also, even though we can tame the inflation in a short term with high interest rate, but also, they will kill the economy's vitality, and when it comes to the recovery cycle, I think the recovery will come much slower than we expected. Hmm. So, would you agree with this uh, IMF uh, deputy head that in this point, that when inflation is taking too long to cool down, central banks then may need to adjust their monetary policy reaction in order to account for financial stress? Yes, I, I do agree, because as we discussed uh, uh, before, earlier in the previous interview, as I said, this inflation is quite different from a previous one. Because most of the inflation comes from the supply side, which is, uh, you know, uh, the geopolitical conflict, the choking points in the supply chain, and also the former impact due to the COVID. But now most of the issues are fading away. For example, the COVID is gone, and also geopolitical issues are still there, but its impact are being, you know, people are getting used to it. And also with Chinese back online, Chinese productivity is back online. So the wealth supply chain is also on the way of recovery. So you can see actually right now, most of the world are being lowering on their CPI or the core inflation indicators. So I do think if keep on going with a high rise in interest rate, that will not help with the supply side issue, but kill more of the demand side well, in danger of recovery in the future. So I do think we should take a balance, you know, a policy making uh, besides the interest rate rising, but also we need to use the fiscal policies and also other policies to, you know, balance the current inflation and the future recovery. Okay. So this comment was made during a, um, a sort of an annual conference of the European Central Bank. I mean, in the case of the ECB, the bank has raised its benchmark deposit rate at a kind of unprecedented pace from minus 0.5% last year to somewhere around 3.5% earlier this month. And basically, the ECB has signaled that more rates, uh, more rise is, is basically underway. So in your observation, Professor Tree, are we likely to see another, say, Eurozone sovereign debt crisis? Uh, well, I don't think we're going to see, you know, uh, a debt crisis as before in a Eurozone. The reason why the ECB keep on going with this interest rate hiking is because the European uh, Union or Eurozone policy needs to keep up the pace with America Federal Reserve. Uh, otherwise, if uh, the ECB's policy rate is much lower than a Federal Reserve benchmark, then you are going to see the capital flight out of the European Union. So that's going to be even worse. So the reason why they're still doing it is because uh, Federal Reserve's interest rate policy is still going to be there. The ECB wouldn't want to, you know, to getting so far away from it. But I, when, but uh, when you see um, when Federal Reserve President Paul has mentioned that they probably going to lower down the pace and uh, probably pausing uh, the interest rate hike at the end of this year, I think at that time the ECB will also stop their move on the policy rate. So yes. I think the situation is going to be much better this time. And also, if you take a look at the leverage ratio in the European Union's uh, enterprises and the household, uh, the leverage ratio is still very low, uh, much lower than before, before the 
2015 uh, uh, debt crisis. So, yes, so this time it's going to be different. Mm. So beyond the European countries and North America, I mean, another worry, a real worry regarding this high debt level issue really concerns those low-income economies in the developing world, in Latin America, Africa, in some particular, you know, Asian countries. So in this regard, Professor Chu, we have seen discussions at the G7 level, the Paris Club level, the level of G20, and most recently there was this meeting called a Summit for a New Global Financial Pact, hosted by French President Emmanuel Macron in Paris. So in your opinion, who should really take up this main responsibility in terms of addressing this particular challenge? Well, we do think uh, in our you know, academic society, we have a word called uh, uh, financial center countries. So this financial center countries should really take the responsibility. America, you know, the G7 countries, or even further, the G20 countries, they provided most of the financial resources in the whole world. So they should shoulder the responsibility. Yes, hiking up the interest rates can make the things, make the issues go away as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. When you raise up the interest rate to 10% a year, yes, there's going to be no inflation immediately. But what's the cost? The cost is that... Uh, Billions of the people in the developing nations are going to suffering from the debt issues. Capital flight out of their country. Uh, small and medium-sized enterprises get killed by the high interest rate. So in the future, the recovery for the whole globe is going to slow down. We're seeing a looming vision out of there. So when we're yeah. trying to solve the problem of G7 and rich countries, we really need to pay attention to the longer return and longer good for the whole globe. I think this is responsibility that everyone really needs to pay Thank you, as always. That was Dr. Chu Tiang, Research Fellow of Global Issues with Beijing Foreign Studies University. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.